All right, Fawn Forrest, it's so good to see you. Uh, thank you for worshiping with us. Thanks for being here. And uh, again, my name is Brett, and I am just, I love being uh, here with you at this time in this season and uh, at this church. So if you have your Bible, I hope that you do. Go ahead and grab that and make your way to Exodus, uh, the book of Exodus, chapter 20. So Exodus 20, and uh, we'll look at the first few verses of that chapter in just a few moments. But let me add my hi to everybody here in the room today and everybody joining us online. Thanks for, uh, thanks for taking some time and making this uh, an intentional step towards, uh, towards what you want your fall schedule to look like. It is now. It's not officially fall because it's a thousand degrees outside, but it does feel like when, uh, when school begins to get back in season and practices begin to stack up in the afternoon and the schedule gets a little more full and you're back making, you know, all the school lunches the night before, all those things, it feels like it's time to really start looking intentionally at what you want in your life, what you want in your schedule, what you want for your family. And that's really the goal of this series that we're in called Game Plan. If you could uh, divide up, there's some major categories. There's some spaces of your life that really are unavoidable. And what if you looked at some of these spaces and you thought, these are so important, I want to proactively prepare and not just react in the middle of it, not just uh, be caught off guard and then have to endure it. What would it look like for me to intentionally get ready for this rather important part of my life. So uh, when I was growing up, I grew up in church. My parents, uh, they did the right thing. They brought me to church every Sunday and Sunday night and Tuesday night for visitation and Wednesday night for uh, choir. But anyway, I spent a lot of time at church uh, as a kid growing up, and I love that. Like, I'm one of those guys who I, I never really went through the season of, uh, I don't love the church, I don't trust the church. I, had, uh, I just had a great experience in the church growing up, and occasionally there would be Sunday mornings, there would be sermons where uh, the pastor would talk about parenting, and I would always use that opportunity to like nudge my, my mom and dad to be like, you better listen up, you know, like he's talking to you, and I hope you're taking notes, and uh, so today we're going to talk about parenting, we're going to talk about families and, uh, and discipleship and what it looks like for you to do more than just raise children, but to prepare future Jesus followers, and I want you to know, if you are not at this stage or at this present time in your life, if you're not a mom or you're not a dad, you don't have kids in the house or maybe you used to or you don't yet, um, there's something for every one of us. There's something for God to say to every single person in the room and listening today because all of us have some kind of family. All of us have some kind of people and all of us have a story about our family and our people, and that story defines our view of family. At the, at the outset, I want you to know that I am well aware of the fact that even bringing up the idea of family can carry with it some emotional weight, maybe even some baggage. But for better or worse, your experience as a family member has a profound effect, a huge impact on who you are as a person. Now, Murray Bowen was considered by many to be the founder of family systems theory, and he talks about the implications and weight of family in these terms. He says that families so profoundly affect their members' thoughts and feelings and actions that it often seems as if people are living under the same emotional skin. That is heavy. 
That is at the outset. I mean, we're just a couple of minutes in and it already feels like there's a lot to be said about what it means to be a parent, and that's true. But uh, one of what I consider to be the leading expert on just family and inner dynamics of moms and dads and kids, his name is David Thomas, and he runs Daystar Ministries out of Nashville, Tennessee. He and his partner, Sissy Goff, they write and they speak almost exclusively on being a parent. We uh, had the pleasure of inviting David to come spend some time with some families uh, in our area. And I will never forget one of the things that he said at the outset. He almost invited everyone to take a deep breath and to go, it's okay because I know that this is one of those topics where the, the field begins to be populated very quickly in your mind and in your memory of all the ways in which maybe there's some, uh, I wish I could do that differently. I wish I had never done that. I wish I'd never said that. How could they have done this? How could they have said that? But I want you to know what he said, it matters and it's true here today. Because you're here, because you're listening, because you, you clicked the podcast or the video, I think it says something about your heart that at least there is an intention, there's a desire, at least you're curious enough to want to learn a little bit more about what God says and that's everything. But our nearness, our proximity to one another matters. Because who you're around dictates who you'll become. Like who you spend your time with, rather, uh, whether it's intentional or unintentional, who you are around really matters because um, we need each other. We, we are actually created to want to be around other people. And we know that we need each other because when we are isolated or when we feel lonely, uh, that is not a pleasant feeling. In fact, it's painful. I do not like being by myself. Uh, I, if I'm in the car, I wanna be on the phone. I wanna be, uh, I wanna be reminded that I have people and I have, uh, I have friends and I have family and there's other things going on rather than just my one slice of life. And that's been true my whole life. Uh, I am kind of talkative. I am one of those uh, you know, extroverted people. I love being around people. It takes me a long time to wind down after I've been around a group of people. And so for me, the worst punishment that I could get growing up, the worst consequences and all the parents in the room have all kinds of different ways that you enforce consequences and set expectations as your family. But for my parents growing up, they knew the worst thing they could say to me was, uh, go to your room, it's time for a timeout. Uh, I can't believe, like I have to go and sit by myself without anything around. I wasn't supposed to read and there were no screens uh, during the, the good old days. And so, um, but it was just, I had to sit there in isolation and a timeout was worse than corporal punishment for me. And the reason is, is because you and I, when we are cut off from what, what, from what we need, when we are isolated from what we think and see as primary and necessary for our survival, we cease to flourish, we cease to grow. And that's not just true of food and water and shelter, it's true of people too. When you are cut off from the people that God has decided that you are supposed to be around, you don't get to pick your family, God does that. But when you're cut off from them, when relationships are strained or toxicity or dysfunction enters into the relationship, it's hard to thrive. It's hard to feel healthy. And if healthy and abundant full life is only found with and around other people, what does that mean? It means that it's hard to be healthy alone. It's hard to be healthy alone. 
What has fascinated me and at the same time broken my heart as we think about what the last three and a half years have looked like for our country and our world and our culture, what fascinates me and breaks my heart is seeing the beginning. And I stress the beginning of what a season of isolation and loneliness has caused in the hearts and the minds of all people. Because we're not made to just get through by ourselves. The reason we know that is because in the creation account in Genesis 1:26, we know that the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that they're all involved together in even creation happening. Genesis 1:26 says, "Then God said, "Let us." So he's inviting every member of the Trinity, the, the, the three in oneness of God, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Now you might be here today and either by choice or by season or by reason, you think that isolation or going at it all by yourself, that's your preferred option. But may I submit to you that when God decided to create people, he did it in a group, that you are created in the image of a community. There's an ongoing implication of let us. Like we feel today, this morning, this moment, we feel the implications, the consequences of him using the words, let us. The implications are this, that there is a community and a complementarity that is necessary. We have to have this. It's necessary in order for us to be proper image bearers of the divine. Translation, if you wanna look like Jesus, you can't do it by yourself. We need others around us. We need others around us who are even not like us because we wanna experience the divine imprint that God has left on our souls. And that's why when we're not around our people, that's why when we're isolated, there's a deep ache. We actually feel differently because we know we're not made for this. And it's also why the people that we're around the most, the people we spend the most time with, our families, it's why they play such a crucial role in development and discipleship. So I hope you found Exodus chapter 20 by now. Let me read for us beginning in verse one. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is God's word. Your family, like your people, they are the most powerful and influential group that will determine who you are today and tomorrow. When I say your people, I mean your generation. Now, don't think when I say generations that I mean anything regarding baby boomers or millennials or Gen Z or anything like that. Uh, when I say generation, I, I mean 
not the people you've come from, the people that you're around, the people that you're with, because it's your family, your parents, your parents, not your peers, define who you are. And the reason I know that is because the Bible is so clear on the importance of the role as a parent. Look, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 18 and 19 say, imprint these words of mine on your hearts and minds. Bind them as a sign on your hands and let them be a symbol on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down, when you get up. Psalm 784 says, we will not hide them from their children, but will tell a future generation the praiseworthy acts of the Lord. Numbers 14, 18, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, forgiving iniquity and rebellion, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequence of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations. What the Bible seems to stress and what you and I cannot miss is this. Number one, sin has generational consequences. That word iniquity is a theological and fancy word for sin. The intentional choice to do the contrary to what God has asked. Now, when the Bible, just so we're clear, when the Bible talks about generational sin, God is not saying that the great-great-grandchildren are gonna have to pay the price for the great-great-grandparents. Like, that's not what the scriptures are saying. What they are saying is that you and I, everybody in the room, everybody, you and I, because of the generations that have gone before us, we have a natural drift. We have a natural bent like we, we are almost prone toward certain areas of sin. Like we're bent towards specific actions or choices or attitudes or prejudices, demeanors. Those things are passed down generation to generation. Meaning that there is something to the idea that what you're around has a determining effect on who you are. And it's not it's not that God is gonna punish you for your parents' sin. That's not what he's like. But the effect of your parents' sin, it lives on in you. What do I mean? I mean that your children will remember and believe and repeat more what you do than what you say because life is more caught than taught. In a very sobering reality, they will imitate you. They will say what you say. They will do what you do. Family patterns in the Bible are so clear to pick out. So I read the Bible with a group of guys. We're in a group text and we read the same, uh, the same section of scripture and uh, we start the year every year in Genesis. And one thing that, that I noticed when I was reading through Genesis earlier this year is that uh, history tends to repeat itself. Like it seems that like f families and generations seem to be doing the same thing, telling the same story, experiencing the same things over and over again in the scripture. I, I want you to notice something. Uh, this pattern, these patterns from Genesis 12 through 50, these I think are unmissable. So, uh, Abraham, he lies twice about his wife, Sarah. And then Abraham's son, Isaac, 
and his, wife's, uh, his wife, Rebecca, their marriage is characterized by lies. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, lies to almost everyone about everything. In fact, the name Jacob means deceiver. And 10 of Jacob's children lied about Joseph's death. They fake a funeral to hide a family secret. And so this pattern of lying and deception and not telling the truth seems to be passed down like a terrible family heirloom from one generation to the next. But it's not just lying. Think about the favoritism that shows up as a pattern. Abraham favored Ishmael. Isaac favored Esau. Jacob favored Joseph. And then later, Benjamin. And if you read the Bible and pay attention, you'll notice these things begin to show up. It's not just lying and it's not just favoritism. Think of the sibling rivalry, the division of families in just the first book of scripture. Isaac and Ishmael, they're cut off from one another. And if you don't think dysfunction has a long shelf life, let me remind you that the sibling rivalry that caused a family split is what people are still fighting about in the Middle East thousands of years later today. Jacob flees his brother Esau. Joseph is cut off from his 10 brothers. How about not just lying or favoritism or sibling rivalry? How about the dysfunctional marriages you see in scripture? Abraham has a, a child out of wedlock with Hagar. Isaac has a terrible relationship with, Re, with Rebekah. That's Abraham's son. And Jacob, Abraham's grandson, he has two wives and two concubines. So you don't see a lot of biblical marriages that you want to emulate when you look at just the first book of the Bible. I mean, it's not, it's, humans have not been around very long and they're doing their very best to mess it up. Here's what I want you to see. Sin has lasting consequences for generations. Translation, you can never say of any sin that nobody's gonna get hurt. The best way for me to illustrate what that looks like and what that means is to ask you to think about um, casting a shadow. So you and I, when we walk outside and immediately break out in, in a sweat, uh, but we, we, you know, when we walk outside and the sun is, is shining, you will see every single person cast a shadow. Everybody has the ability, everyone has the potential to cast a shadow. The only thing that changes is the position of the light that's causing the shadow to be cast. You can cast a shadow at any time, but you only see it when the light is in the right place. This is how generational sin works. When you're in certain situations, when you are dealing with specific stress, when you are faced with that temptation. It's amazing how we have the ability and the tendency to revert back to what we saw and what we experienced growing up. Church family, this is not uh, armchair psychology. This is biblical theology. That no matter how great your parents were, and some of you have and had amazing parents, no matter how great your childhood was or how often your parents got it right or got it wrong, all of us have this in common with our family stories. This is what's true of every single family story in the room. Our moms and our dads were broken, sinful people despite their best efforts otherwise. Mom and dad dealt with sin. Did they do the best they could with what they had? Maybe, but they dealt with sin too. So generational sin 
has long consequences. And generational sin, it is reality, but not an excuse. Generational sin is a reality, but it is not an excuse. It's a fascinating passage from the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is this prophet that speaks with the Lord and then on behalf of the Lord. And in Ezekiel chapter 18, there's a fascinating text in the first four verses. It says, the word of the Lord came to me. Ezekiel's talking. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. This is evidently a popular saying around Ezekiel's time. And God comes to his prophet, to his man, who's gonna speak on his behalf and, and goes, what do you mean saying this saying, using this phrase over and over again, the fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. So now God is speaking. You will no longer use this proverb in Israel. Look, every life belongs to me. The life of the Father is like the life of the Son. Both belong to me. The person who sins is the one who will die. God is clearing up some false information. What the Lord God is saying to his prophet and what the prophet Ezekiel speaking the words of God is saying is this. Don't use this proverb as an excuse. What the Bible is saying to you and me is that we can't continue to use our parents or our family or our generational tendencies as an excuse for sin. Now, briefly aside, there are people in the room, there are people watching, there are people listening who, when I talk about generational sin, it wasn't just like it was a lower class offense. I am, man, I wanna be very aware and very sensitive to the fact that some of you, when, when you think about the house that you grew up in, or maybe the home that you could not wait to get out of, that there was some sin that transgressed and that it happened to you, some sin was committed against you. And I want you to know that when I say it's not an excuse, what I mean is this. That doesn't have to be the only and most true thing about you. It may be true, but it does not have to define you forever. That you may carry that last name, but it doesn't have to be the lasting image where when you close your eyes, that's the first thing you think about. We can't use generational sin, though, as an excuse. Here's some phrases that I can't say. And I, I told somebody this in, uh, in the lobby earlier, and so I'll just, I'll tell everybody now. Um, I, I said in the first service that these are phrases that I can't say. Can I just raise my hand and go, I've said this, and, and, and pray that I don't anymore? But here's some phrases that I can't say. And the reason I can't say them is because I follow Jesus because I want him to be the authority that I place my life under. So I can't say things like, well, man, you know what? That's just the way I was raised. That's just the way I was raised. You know what else I can't say? That's just how the Moors are. Just is what it is, man. I can't say, well, you know what? It's what I grew up with. It's what I saw. It is what it is. I don't wanna, 
I don't want to say that. I don't want to live like that. What I am saying is this. When we think about shadow, when we think about the past, here's your choice. You can shine a light on it and experience freedom, or you can stay in the shadow of your past. But you know what that makes you? A slave. As parents, we can look back as to how we were raised and look at our families and think about our stories, and we can decide. You can decide. Make the choice that that was of God and that was darkness. What was Ezekiel saying? He's saying that each of us will be responsible to give our own account to God. Are there factors? Yes. Yes, absolutely. But a question I wanna ask is this. Are there factors? Is there generational sin? 100%. But a better question I think is this. Who is like our God? What can't God do? For generations, the nation of Israel, God's people, they lived in captivity. The heritage, the family of origin story that was passed down from generation to generation was that they were slaves. That it was, I'm a slave, my dad was a slave, my grandfather was a slave, my child will be a slave. For hundreds of years, that is the narrative around God's people around the nation of Israel, his chosen group, their family of origin story is an origin of oppression and slavery. They know it all too well. It's not history for them at this point. It's their lived experience. From father to son, from mother to daughter, a heritage of slavery. But God has told us in his word that what we are to pass on to our children is not just the narrative concerning our people. God tells us to pass down knowledge of and love for the law. And the law is, is wonderful. The law, the 10 commandments, they give us an outline of what God's expectations for people who follow him are to live like and think like and worship like. But the law and the 10 commandments, it's at best a mirror. The law can show you what's wrong, but it can't change anything. The law is like an x-ray machine in that it can show you what's broken, but it can't make it heal. And what every parent has the responsibility to do is to tell their children, not just that there's a set of rules and a set of laws that the Bible has, has put out for us to align ourselves under and to align our lives to. That's not the responsibility of every parent what your responsibility is, is to say, and to pass on to them, to disciple them, that loving Jesus is the most important thing and that that's the better way. And that way is the gospel. That way is trusting that Jesus is prepared to heal, not just point out what's wrong. And we see this in how Jesus talked. If you follow Jesus through the Bible, specifically in the Gospels, you see Jesus trying to illuminate the fact that it's not just the law, keeping the law, making sure you're perfect and disciplined and that there's no transgression on your record. That's not the story that Jesus told and that's not the life that Jesus lived. We pick up the story in John chapter eight. 
John was the disciple that followed Jesus around and thought that he was the most liked and beloved. But in John 8, 30, this is what we read. As Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus is talking to a group of Jewish people, a group of Jewish people who shared the same family of origin story as the nation of Israel. He's speaking, he's eye to eye, he's having a conversation with a group of people who their great, great, great grandparents and every generation that they could remember before that, the only story and narrative that they could remember is that they were living as oppressed slaves from the empire known as Egypt. And Jesus is talking to them and saying, if, you will, if you'll follow me, if you'll know the truth, it will set you free. A message of hope and opportunity, an invitation to freedom. And what do they say back? Verse 33, they, they go, we are descendants of Abraham, they answered him. So there's the affirmation. Yes, we come from Abraham. We have good family origin. We're God's people. We're the church. We're the nation of Israel. We are descendants of Abraham, they answered him. And then, I, I will never stop being confounded by the Bible. This is what they said next. We have never been enslaved to anyone. They were, they were Jewish people, descendants of Abraham, self-admitted. And they say to God's son, sent to liberate them, who has just told them what freedom looks like and what freedom requires. And they go, we're not, we're not a slave to anybody. We've never been a slave to anybody. You talk to anybody in my family, we've never been a slave to, how dare you? How dare you say that I need to be free? Because the implication is that if I need to be free, then I'm a slave to something else or somebody else. They're living in denial of the generational consequences. Of course they had been slaves. How can you say they push back? They dare Jesus at this point. How can you say you will become free Jesus responded, truly I tell you, which is Jesus's way of going, okay. Truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. This is Jesus, who is the Savior, for a moment and a line in a conversation, acting as a prophet. He's lifting the veil and saying, that's why I'm here. I'm here because your family line has known nothing but slavery to the point that it's become so normalized that you can't even see it or sense it anymore. 
You're so enslaved and addicted to sin that you don't even remember what freedom felt like. But I'm here to do something about that. Jesus is there and he's here to introduce a new way of life. He reminds us all, yes, you do have a heritage as the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. Now this is you and me. As the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, we're all bent, we're all prone, and we all drift towards sin and towards slavery. That's what, that's what we're programmed with. We come with that off the rack. But what Jesus is offering is not just an opportunity to follow better rules. Jesus is offering a new identity, a place where now as a son or daughter of God, you get to live in the house of God free, forever. And you know what that means for parents in the room? You know what it means for families? It means that if you're a parent and you're here and you've got babies in the nursery, you've got kids in kids ministry, you've got students in youth ministry, you got babies, kids, teenagers, God's asking you to do one thing. This is the one thing God is asking you to do. You ready? The one thing God is asking you to do is don't be a barrier from them knowing the Lord. Don't make it hard. And you might think, I, no, I, I'm not. I mean, I'm here, we're here. I, we bring them to church. I know. But when you leave, when you go home, when you think about what takes priority in your schedule, when you think about what takes priority with your resources, when you think about what takes priority with what you love the most, when you're a, when you're a student, when you're a child, when you're the, when the person, the little person that God is trusting you to steward for just a few short years, when they watch you, not, not when they're listening to you, but when they watch you, do you make it hard to know Jesus? I think there's one thing that we can do, one practical step. I'm a simple guy. Here's a question. This is, this is great lunch conversation. I think the thing you can do is, is honestly answer this. Is your family a place where it is safe to fail? Is your family a place where it's safe to fail? Now, there's, there's, so, mu there's so much more to being a parent than just answering this question. Ask any of us. And there's so many things that are helpful for you to do. Okay? Family devotions, yes. Bible studies, yes. Bring them to church. Send them to camp. Go to a group and bring them with you. Like, do things as a family. Have spiritual conversations. But at a foundational level, is your home a safe place for your kids to fail? I love, I have a pastor friend, uh, and they do this thing at his church called family dedication, baby dedication. Uh, a lot of you have done that, whether in this church or another church, and family dedication is basically where you stand on stage and you're saying to your church family with your family, I wanna do everything I can to make it easy for my son or my daughter or my family to know and to love Jesus. It's a promise, really. It's a promise of what you intend to do as a mom or as a dad in the context of the local church. And my 
pastor friend named Ryan, uh, I watched him do this and my jaw dropped because I couldn't believe he was doing it. So during the family baby dedication in his church, uh, he says this as he's praying. He says, Lord, I pray that this child would be caught in sin. And he says this in front of everybody and they can all hear him. He prays that they would be caught in sin. He prays not that they would be caught in sin just so they can be found guilty. But he prays that they would be caught sinning so they can experience the freeing and transforming grace of God for moms and dads and from moms as dads and dads and church family. And you know what? I started doing it. Like as a dad, I started praying that way for my, for my daughters. I actively pray that they would be caught sinning by their church family because I want them to experience the grace of God for myself, for my wife. I would rather them sin and experience grace and redemption and restoration than live under the crushing expectation of perfection. We're talking about family discipleship. And the goal is to raise boys and girls and young men and women and future followers of Jesus who are infatuated with the kingdom of God. And why the word infatuated? Because Christianity is so much more than just right thinking about the kingdom. It's right feeling about the kingdom. It's right allegiance to the kingdom. It's not just education about following Jesus. It is joy. It is joy in following Jesus. And it's the joy that you and I can have because when we think about the kingdom of God or the family that we're a part of as brothers and sisters in Christ, that family is and should be a safe place to fail. Sin does have generational consequences. And the sin is a reality and it is never an excuse. Why? Because there is freedom to be offered and found in the kingdom, the family of God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that there is nothing we can do to exhaust you of your grace and patience. Thank you that you love us and that you want better and what's best for us. We ask for your help in Jesus' name, amen.